0: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's what you'll need to know. Facebook face off. Mark Zuckerberg responds to the whistleblower's allegations. Taiwan tensions. The island's defense minister warns on China. And energy? Eek. Oil and gas prices spark inflationary fears. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Well, welcome once again to First Move. We've got another jam packed show for you this Wednesday with an A list, or should we say D list, of great guests, Dell. Founder and CEO Michael Dell will join us to discuss how to play nice but win. That's the title of his new book, of course. Plus, Jim Fittling, the CEO of chemical giant Dow, that's the other D, on his push for sustainability and how this plays into rising energy costs and the worst inflation spike in decades. One more D, and that's defiant. Mark Zuckerberg fights the devastating whistleblower allegations against his firm. He insists Facebook is a friend, not foe. Facebook investors pretty defiant too, or at least resilient. The shares rose 2% Tuesday, but are still down some 2.5% since that 60 Minutes documentary expose. And let's not forget Monday's service outage, the latest on all of that coming right up. A final, actually, D stands for drop. Take a look at that. Tech-heavy Nasdaq taking back a lot of Tuesdays gains pre-market. Europe, also a sea of red. Soaring energy costs and rising global bond yields, I think, reflect a renewed concern about stagflation. Stag is in no growth, but higher inflationary prices or weaker growth. Oil is trading around seven-year highs. Brent above $80 a barrel. UK gas prices, natural gas prices also hit records and it's all spilling into bond markets. U.S. 10-year bond yields are back above the 1.5% level. At some point, you have to assume the Federal Reserve has to remove support sooner to tame rising prices. Shorter-term yields jumping as well, a reflection of the still unresolved battle over the U.S. debt ceiling. Oh, it's a busy Wednesday. Let's get to the drivers. And that Facebook face off. Mark Zuckerberg is pushing back against claims by whistleblower Frances Haugen, saying accusations that Facebook puts profit over people are simply not true. Among other things, the company is accused of knowingly putting children at risk.
1: I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division and weaken our democracy. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people.
0: Doni Sullivan is on the story for us. Doni, great to have you with us. This was a message to the workers, but obviously um, Mark Zuckerberg said he wanted to make it public and share it with people. Um, and I've pulled out two quotes because I want you to react to them. The first Many of the claims don't make any sense. If we want to ignore research, why would we create an industry-leading research programme to understand these important issues in the first place? Uh, Just because you create research doesn't mean you follow it and act on it. Tony, what do you make of this line?
2: Precisely. And, Mm. I mean, it's about cherry-picking what research results they want, right? We saw a very clear example of that just a few weeks ago. Uh, Facebook released these numbers for the second quarter of 2021, um, sort of painting a rosy picture that showed the best performing links and posts on the platform uh, were about nice things like your pets and cooking and family outings and things like that. Um, but some people started to ask, well, what did quarter one look like? What did the first quarter, the first three months of this year look like? And it eventually that, that report, which Facebook chose not to release, was leaked to The New York Times and it showed one of the top performing uh, links on the platform in the first quarter of this year was a piece undermining the vaccine, the COVID vaccination. So in, in that case, Facebook executives actively uh, worked to withhold research from the public while then for the second quarter pushing out something that painted a rosy picture. So, I mean, it, 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 they ha- it's impossible at this point to, to really trust Facebook to portray their own research accurately. Which is a shame because they have so they do have so many good people working there. I mean, very talented researchers working there. Uh, but in terms of how the company executives portray it, it's it's impossible to trust them at this point.
0: I mean, you can create lots of research. To your point, I think cherry picking there was the phrase. Um, the second thing that stood out to me: um, the argument that we deliberately push content that makes people angry for profit is deeply illogical. We make money from ads, and advertisers consistently tell us that they don't want their ads next to harmful or angry content, he?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, this also goes back to the cherry-picking of facts, right? I mean, they'll always come out with these numbers saying, we have removed 99.999% of hate speech, etc., but then you go on the platform and you can find it pretty easily. Uh, this week, Senator Blumenthal, uh, over the past week, revealed that they, his, his team had set up an account as a 13-year-old girl, uh, started following some pages about eating disorders, and Instagram's own algorithms then started pushing, promoting more and more and more and more pro-anorexia, pro-eating disorder accounts to this 13-year-old. Um, so, I mean, one, I think advertisers probably don't know what the half of what their 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 content is showing up against. And also, this point was made last year during the the hate uh, stop hate for profit campaign, where there was a brief boycott by some major advertisers, but some. Brands feel like they can't avoid Facebook, right? Because Facebook is the Facebook platform. It's Instagram. It's WhatsApp. Folks, some, some, some advertisers feel like Facebook cannot be avoided.
0: Yeah, advertisers don't want to be placed next to angry or harmful content. Fine, you place them somewhere else. There's plenty of content. What advertisers pay for is eyeballs. And Facebook has so much of that and is great at drawing them for better or for worse. Hmm, Donnie. We've got to wrap it up. We will reconvene on this conversation, my friend, as we continue to do. Don't Thank hear, you, Thank you. Taiwan's telling the world China could be ready to launch a full-scale military attack on the island within the next four years. The warning comes amid a rise in Chinese military flights over the island in recent days. Ivan Watson joins us now. Ivan, it may not be a sign of an imminent threat, but it is a pretty potent intimidation technique.
3: Well, yeah, and you're quoting this defense minister who had been briefing lawmakers in Taiwan. And I'll just clarify his quote. He said that uh, today China could invade Taiwan if it so wished, and it would have to pay a price as a result of the Taiwanese military. But by the year 2025, uh, that price would be considerably lower. And some of the context of this is that the defense minister had been speaking with lawmakers about a new budget for Taiwan's military, about $8.5 billion to do things like uh, build uh, more long-range missiles uh, to try to exact a price if, in fact, uh, it came to blows. And this comes down to the fundamental disagreement where the Chinese government insists that Taiwan is a breakaway, renegade piece of its own territory even though the Chinese Communist Party has never ever ruled Taiwan in its history uh, and refuses to uh, accept any other government or institution recognizing Taiwan as uh, a sovereign democratically ruled uh, island. Uh, and the Taiwanese have been hard-pressed, uh, certainly their their air force. Uh, in recent days, it was a holiday weekend in China uh, where you had a record 150 Chinese warplanes that flew into Taiwan's uh, air defense identification zone uh, with some 56, I believe, planes, fighters and bombers uh, approaching Taiwan on Monday alone. That number tapered off on Tuesday, but it prompted the U.S. State Department to issue a statement expressing concern about China's military maneuvers.
0: I was going to ask you that. Where does the United States stand here? Because I think to your exact point, every time a a nation in the West shows any sign of treating Taiwan more like a sovereign nation rather than a sort of rogue breakaway as as China sees them and views them, then China's irritated. Where does the United States stand? Because Taiwan is strategically important for many reasons.
3: Yeah. Uh, President Biden actually spoke about this uh, to journalists recently. Take a listen to what he had to say.
4: I've spoken with Xi about Taiwan. We agree we will abide by the Taiwan agreement. That's what we are. And we made it clear that I don't think he should be doing anything other than abiding by the agreement.
3: Now, we think he's referring to possibly the phone conversation he had with uh, Chinese leader Xi Jinping on September 10th. And follow up to that uh, conversation is a planned meeting between Biden's National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, and uh, Yang Jiechi, he's a top Chinese official, planned for Zurich, uh, with some hope that this is going to reduce some of the tensions between Washington and Beijing, which have continued ever since the Trump administration, and Taiwan is certain to be one of the many issues of contention uh, that these two officials may discuss.
0: Yeah, I'm glad we've got you because I was a bit confused by by what he said there. So, um, yes, watch this space. Thank you, Ivan Watson. Great to have you with us. Okay, soaring energy prices and spiking bond yields, sapping the energy from global stocks. J. Powell's assurances of transitory inflation looking a little delusionary, at least at this point. Christine Romans joins me now. I mean, Christine, there is a lot going on, as you and I have discussed, the debt ceiling negotiations, what's going on in D.C., repayments of U.S. debt, quite frankly. But we can't escape the supply chain pressures and what we see going on in energy costs. And, of course, OPEC Plus deciding to do nothing for now.
1: Yeah, that OPEC plus decision, I think, really kind of sealing the path of least resistance in the near term being higher Mm. for the energy complex. I mean, a little bit step back this morning, but you know, look, this is about demand and supply, simple economics, and you've got uh, economies around the world that are emerging from the COVID crunch and demand is soaring and supplies just can't keep up. You know, we know that there are these ships, and there's so many, you're right, so many different threads to this, right? We know there are these ships off the west coast of the United States that are literally backed up in a parking lot waiting to unload all of their goods, the American consumer is clicking and buying like crazy. Toys and athletic equipment and the like, you know, uh, demand is back. And the supplies are just crunched in the supply chain around the world. And then you have the energy picture, you know, the OPEC OPEC plus picture, um, which means simply that, um, you know, supply can't keep up with demand here. And you've got the highest oil prices in the U.S. since 2014. Gas prices are likely moving higher. You know, when you think about it, What that means for American consumers, at least, is that uh, the average tank of gas is going to be, you know, 10 or 15 dollars higher this year than it was last year. And that's a real inflationary measure every single week for American consumers. So this this inflation watch, which we thought was going to be short term, is turning out to be a a little more, you know, near it's still here. It's still here and will be here, I think, for months to come.
0: Yeah, we're struggling with that transitory word here.
1: Uh, what hmm. is the definition of transitory? I thought it was something a little briefer than this. This is yeah. feels sticky to me. It feels L- a little longer
0: sticky. than we thought. Transitory. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Christine, <laughs> you later welcome. in the program. We'll be speaking to the CEO of chemical and plastics giant Dow on how the energy crunch and rising inflationary pressures are affecting his firm's bottom line. In the meantime, coming up on First Move, it's D Day, the CEOs of Dow, as I mentioned, and Dell are both on the show. Michael Dell tells us how he started a computer empire from a dorm room at university. He'll also explain how you can both play nice and win. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. My next guest built his billions by building PCs. Michael had a knack for making money from a very early age. And while other children were playing sports and riding bikes, Michael's curiosity had him devouring tech publications, dissecting computers and anything else he could find, actually, even his own prized Apple II computer. And later, when he was at university, he would buy surplus computers at a discount, deliver them to needy retailers, trawling the state in a rented van. He's a man who understands supply and demand, but also doing business the right way. Michael, pictured here in 1968, says his mother always told him to play nice but win, a mantra which helped him build a firm that thrives today. Play nice but win is the title of Michael's second book and I'm very pleased to say he joins us now. Michael, great to have you on the show. And I have to Thank say Thank
4: you so much. Great to be
0: with you. It's great to have you here. This is so much better than the first book. Um it's human and and it's funny and I didn't really understand the title. Till I read it and understood, so the more the relationship that you had with your mother. Um, are you proof that you can play nice, but win?
5: Yeah, I believe so. I mean, look, I think uh, competition is a is a great thing and it's a natural thing, but it's also got to be balanced with civility. And I think, uh, you know, building a, a reputation uh, t- takes a lot of work. And um, but. You know, winning in the right way is something I fundamentally believe in. It's something we talk a lot about inside our company and uh, it's it's served served us well.
0: It was one of the quotes that I pulled out where you said um, entrepreneur is the air my family breathed," and, and the book and people have to read it, but it's full of examples Um You as a three-year-old stealing your father's wallet, you went to buy candy, you were found by somebody, you were brought home and you buried the wallet because you thought, "Mm, I've probably done something wrong here. Um, You know, buying your own computer for the equivalent of $5,000 at at just 14 years old for money you'd raised. um, $18,000 in one summer selling Houston Post subscriptions. And they're funny ways that you go about it. I mean, you did have a knack for making money. There There was something unique about you.
5: You know, it 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 felt like a fun game to and a puzzle, right? To sort of figure it out, and uh, yeah, I was interested in business and and technology, and you know, fortunately, I was around at the dawn of the microprocessor age, and I was really lucky in my junior high school that you know there was a teletype terminal, and I found Byte magazine and you know, was able to learn about all these things at a at a really, uh, you know, young age when I was, was able to soak it all in and I, I just loved it. And, you know, that kind of launched me on this, this path that I've been on, uh, you know, now for for our, our company is uh, 37 years old.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I had to keep checking back as I was reading about how old you were. At certain points you were working in a Mexican restaurant as the maitre d' because you were so good defending Uh, immigrants and you were 12 years old. Um, Fast forward to to 20 and you were actually running a company and you decided actually that the component pieces that you were getting for these computers in order to upgrade them were coming from places that you weren't there. I mean, they were coming from South Korea, coming from Japan and you got on a plane and you went there. I mean, you were sort of brave in taking risks and this was a very different Asia then.
5: Yeah, it sure was. I I remember going there, you know, 1985, 20 years old, and it was just a complete eye-opener. And, uh, you know, we set up our, you know, the the beginnings of our supply chain, which really became an incredible strength and still is today, particularly given some of the challenges that exist in the world. I think one of your last segments was just talking about that. But. yeah, I think I think uh, I think people should take more risks, and I think a lot of human potential is left on the table because people are afraid to fail. And uh, you know, I've I've been willing to take risks, and and it served me well. I've made plenty of mistakes too. I mean, I talk about those in the book, and you know, there's lots of learnings and experiments and things that didn't go right, but all of that uh, led us to. Even greater successes later on.
0: I mean you as you said, you picked up and you got involved at a very nascent stage in computer technology. Um, you know you built this company, you took it public, you went private, you had a very public battle with activist investor, um, Icon, of course. Um, and at one point in the book you described being scared even when you were private again and you had more flexibility to, to run the business and you could see the changes, but you were like, this is, this is scary. How do you overcome that fear as a, as a founder and as a leader um, and sort of keep fighting? Because there was plenty of fight in this book.
5: Well, yeah. And I wanted to really explain, uh, you know, everything I was feeling during those times, because, you know, if you sort of look, from the outside in, you, you you might say, oh, well, you know, th- th- all these things just happened and uh, everything was great. Well, it, yeah, ter- but it could have turned out very differently. And and, uh, and these things don't just happen by themselves. And, you know, uh, it, during those moments, y- you, you focus on the things you can control and take it a piece at a time and just wake up every day and figure out what's the most right thing uh, th- th- that you can do today that is going to move you forward to tomorrow.
0: I mean, Dell might never have happened because your parents wanted you to be a doctor and you were at university studying. You were pre-med and your parents came to visit and you were obviously involved with computers and, and upgrading them. And you were shoving pieces of computers into your flatmate's bath, bathroom cupboards in order to hide the evidence. And, You describe a very emotional period where you said, "Okay, I'm going to stop this and I'm going to do what you want me to do. And you had 10 days where you didn't touch a computer and actually it consolidated your belief that this is what you needed to do. And this is another component, I think, of the book, which is trust your gut. Um, How important is that in, in building a business in life, quite frankly?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a pretty fundamental one, um, and you know, I I have I have uh, followed my my inner voice, uh, but you know, back to that story, I mean, I think the interesting thing is that if if my parents had uh, not insisted that I you know stop. <laughs> It might have just continued as a as a as a hobby. I don't really know, right? (laughs) Uh, But but it was during those ten days that I you know went into sort of deep reflection about all this, and it was at that moment that I really decided to turn this into you know a a a serious business. And and you know that that was when I was eighteen years old, and and uh, you know launched launched the company from. From my dorm room.
0: I mean, that's a big deal. Like, how would you advise people today if they're, you know, a lot of young people today want to create a business, have a good idea, but the idea to sort of give up your education, irrespective of what you're studying, I mean, you have children yourself. Um, What's your advice for those in a similar situation, perhaps not having something as lucrative?
5: I don't think dropping out of college is good generic advice. Uh, <laughs> okay, and, uh, good. <laughs> you know, your, your your mileage may vary on that one. Uh, you know, <laughs> depending on your circumstances. I mean, in my case, uh, you know, I had already kind of ramped the business up to about eighty thousand dollars a month, and so it felt like a uh, you know very obvious thing to me to get a an office and you know expand the business, and I had the you know, this this uh, situation at the University of Texas in Austin where I could uh, take a semester off and come back. So if the business didn't work out, you know, I would just go right back to college. So to me, it really didn't feel like a big risk. And, uh, you know, fortunately, everything everything worked out pretty well.
0: Yeah, they got over it. <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about this was um, meeting your wife, because actually, in the book, you say, sort of marrying her was the most important decision of your life beyond anything else that you had going on and that you've done subsequently. And you do a lot of walking and talking in the book at times when you couldn't speak to anybody else. And and Susan was sort of pivotal to, to many of those decisions and your path and obviously your children. Do you think you could have done this without her?
5: No, I mean, you know, uh, to have a, a a life partner and a thought partner uh, to be able to reflect on all these things uh, has just been amazing, and and uh, you know, we, we we've been very blessed, and you know, we'll celebrate uh, thirty-two years of marriage here uh, later this month.
0: Congratulations on that! Um, I know the two of you are now advising other entrepreneurs, and. I know you're also very cautious about saying anything about other people's businesses and giving advice to other leaders, um, but obviously we've all been watching. Um... Well, I'm
5: I'm happy, I'm happy to do that, just usually not, uh, you know, on national television. But I know I <laughs> no. <laughs>
0: anything about Apple? Um, actually, it's Facebook, so it's uh, it's equally as uh, sizable. Um, the, the whistleblower that we've all been, I think, watching this week, she, she said to Mark Zuckerberg and to Facebook, declare moral bankruptcy and admit you need help. And I just, again, as a, as a founder and a big CEO and, and having read the book and those moments where you were like, look, I need help. I'm young. I need more experienced people. Is there a moment where you go, actually, I'm growing so fast. This is actually out of control. And the best thing is to ask for help and actually mean it.
5: Oh yeah, I mean, I I asked for help uh, all along the way, <laughs> and I yeah. think I think yeah. uh, I think it's it's really important. Uh, and you've got to find the, the right uh, you know resources and teams that can that can help you um, for sure. Um, you know, I can't really do much of anything by myself, but you know, by organizing the right uh, resources and 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 teams, you know, we're, we're able to accomplish a lot. So. Uh, you know, uh, don't 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 go at this all, all you know all, all all on your own.
0: So hypothetically, that would be good advice if you were in the game of advising someone like Mark Zuckerberg.
5: Yes, for sure.
0: Yeah. Um, when do you think you went from founder to leader? Because that's actually the title of the book. It's the journey from, from founder to leader. And there's one point when, again, you're around 2021 and you're furiously reading all books on leadership because you're like, I've got this, this massively grown company, I need to hire people. But, I, you know, you're not a leader. And I, I do think that transition from founder to leading a giant company with more than 100,000 workers today, when did you go, OK, I'm actually, I'm a leader now, I feel like a leader, I'm qualified as a leader?
5: Well, I was I was kind of thrust into leadership because the company grew, you know, eighty uh, percent a year in its first eight years, and sixty percent a year for the six years after that compounded. So, put any number in that math, and you get you know ten billion plus, which that happened. Uh, but I would say it was it was gradual, and fortunately, I was able to attract a number of people that. Helped me along the way. I described them in, in in the book, uh, but yeah, I mean it was it was a it was a gradual uh, building of 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 capability and confidence to, to be able to 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 lead our teams. And I really didn't have any choice. I mean, I I had to I had to lead uh, because uh, you know other, otherwise uh, you know yeah, there's, there's 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 you know nobody else to do it.
0: Yeah, but it's funny because you were writing sort of lists even from when you were 23 of how you wanted the company to be run, the culture, the things that were important to you. Um, and obviously you've carried that forth and it's been adapted over the years, but y- you were doing that right from the get-go, which is something else that stood out to me. Um, talk to me about today because I should talk to you about something um, something about the company today and, and, and how you're doing and... Um, also about the future of work because you talked about this at the end and you said look in the space of a weekend you managed to get a hundred thousand workers working from home which is phenomenal actually technology is one thing in the past 18 months that that did work and now you're trying to find a balance between sort of flexible working the innovation that's created by people being together how do you see that playing out because i think it is a challenge for us all to understand what's the best way to work going forward
5: you know, I think every organization will find the right uh, balance for itself. But I think when we uh, talk with with our, our customers, it's pretty clear that hybrid uh, is is here to stay. And uh, you know, people are uh, people have had this shared experience over the last 18 months, where so many things worked well during the lockdowns. You know, because of technology, and so, um, you know, in many ways, I think this was a a glimpse of the future, and uh, we're we're not going to go back to the way it was. And there has been this kind of massive acceleration in the use of digital technology across the world, and certainly that's been a great uh, benefit to our business. Our business is doing very well. We had fifty billion dollars in revenues in the first half of the year, <laughs> up fifteen percent in the last quarter. So you know, records all around and, uh, you know, business continues to, to, to look look quite strong uh, because I think all of society is, is being transformed with all this data that's being created and the opportunities to reimagine so many industries and in so many parts of, of our world that, uh, you know, technology is the fulcrum of progress in.
0: I couldn't agree more, and actually, I was just—we were just showing the share price there, and I think uh, the share price reflects everything that you were saying there. Which, in light of reading the book as well, is um, is quite fascinating to see. I have a final question, then I have to let you go. Um, and I wanted to ask you, given what we're seeing in terms of the political environment in the United States, but obviously around the world too, how you both, you and Susan, because I do feel like, again, having read the book, it would be a joint decision. How you feel about? perhaps going into politics at some point in the future, is it a possibility? Would you rule it out?
5: You know, I would say uh, there's less than a 0% chance of that. (laughs) Why? I I, I wouldn't be a good politician. Don't have any interest in it. Uh, It's just just not my thing. So no, thank you very much.
0: Yeah. You know, that's a shame because we need good leadership. We desperately need good leadership. Um, Michael, as you can tell, I love the well, book, so I'm, I'm honest. Paul,
5: I guarantee it will not be me.
0: Okay, I think that's pretty definitive. I, I... <laughs> it was great to chat to you. Thank you. And um, you know, there was a great bit as well. And I, I don't want to make you emotional, but your mother and you—you you talked in the book about the speech that you you gave um, at her funeral. And I'm not going to quote it directly, but you basically said she taught you not what to think, but how to think. And I think that's a great gift. And I think that's something that came out of the book, too, in the way that you lead. Michael, great to have you with us. Michael Dow, founder, chairman, so and CEO of Dow Technologies. Thank you. Hopefully, we'll speak again soon. The market opens next. Welcome back to First Move. US stocks are up and running this Wednesday. And as expected, it is a slightly weaker open, a continuation. I think of the intense volatility we've seen over the past week. The S&P falling or rising at least 1% in each of the last four trading sessions. It reflects the uncertainty. And new numbers out Tuesday show continued strong growth in the U.S. services sector meanwhile. Plus fresh data today showing stronger than expected private sector jobs growth. More than 560,000 positions added last month. Investors are growing more fearful over how rising inflation and higher energy costs might eat into corporate profits and, of course, hit future growth. Take a look at these huge jumps in commodity prices. Already this year, coffee up more than 50%, cotton up 42% to 10 year highs, poultry up 34%, coal up more than 230% as demand soars due in part to natural gas shortages. Energy shortages hitting China and now India particularly hard. Oil and natural gas are pulling back slightly today, but Brent crude still up 58% year to date. U.S. crude up more than 60% and natural gas spiking over 140%. Wow, that was a lot of percentages, but you get the picture And among the companies closely watching the situation is Dow, one of the world's largest chemical producers and, of course, highly dependent on fossil fuels. Today, it's announcing major investment plans and a strategy to cut carbon emissions to zero across its operations and value chain by 2050, the goal to be the world's most sustainable materials company. Joining us now is Dow CEO Jim Fitterling. Jim, always great to have you on the show. I think I get the message today. The the message seems to be, look, we can increase the performance of the business, but we can do it in a more sustainable way. And for you, that's no mean feat.
4: Yeah, it's nice to be with you, Julia. And we announced today our our investments to increase our underlying EBITDA by between three and $3.9 billion, while at the same time, reducing our scope one and two CO2 emissions and creating in Alberta, the world's first zero carbon ethylene production facility by more than tripling our capacity there and taking the off gas from both the new cracker and the existing cracker, converting them into circular hydrogen, which will fuel that operation. So I think it's a big step forward. It it gets us into a future where you could see polyethylene with a zero carbon footprint And I think that'll be a game winner for the packaging industry.
0: Yeah, a game changer. I mean, you spend a lot of time, too, and we've talked about it in the past, the the sort of circular economy that we need where waste is concerned. And I think with all of us, when we're looking at our plastic usage, we always wonder when we're recycling how much will actually be recycled. And I know... In the United States, the EPA has said, look, they want 50% of this recycled, which suggests a lot less is. I mean, this is a crucial part of this, too. And it's not just an individual company that, that has to tackle this. It's a bigger issue.
4: It's a big issue. It, it, it entails the entire value chain. Uh, right. We have to work with waste companies and local municipalities to get the demand and create the supply you know, that can feed that demand. But... To give you an example, uh, this year, our sales of products which contain post-consumer recycle materials have more than tripled, and so the demand pull is there. All the brand owners around the world are wanting more, and they want, obviously, the ability to get it faster, and we're trying to keep up with that, and there are investments going. We, we agree, by the way, with targets. Uh, we have supported uh, targets that we believe should be set to have as much as 30 percent Uh, Recycle material in every package that's out there and we work with the other plastics producers and value chain members to kind of drive those standards. But it takes investment and it takes a lot of small local investments to create the supply that we need to feed that growing demand.
0: You know, again, I go back to plastics because it is such a specific part of your business and a significant part of your business. What would happen if we just turned around in a similar way that we're trying to shift the energy industry suddenly to renewables and said, look, no plastics, you have to use glass and you have to use paper. What would happen to our waste? What would happen to our CO2 footprint? Have you, have you looked at this?
4: Well, your waste would go up dramatically. So the volume of waste that would go to landfill would increase by 40-50 percent. Wow. Uh, paper and, and glass have four to five times the CO2 footprint of plastics and that's before we take plastics to a zero carbon footprint. So plastics have been successful because they are the most sustainable packaging product out there. Uh, they also replace a lot of other materials because they can be stronger and lighter and that ability to do more with less is what drives more of your automobile to be lightweight plastics. In fact, as we go to electric vehicles, you'll use more plastics in there because electric vehicles have a weight problem as well from all the weight of the batteries. Uh, Wind turbines use a lot of plastics and composites. Solar panels use a lot of plastics. So banning is not the answer. I think you have to have policies that support all of them, but you also have to have policies that support moving them to low carbon emissions, and that's what we're doing up in Alberta.
0: Yeah. Um, obviously, it's a, it's got to be a private and public sector uh, deal. There's got to be coordination because otherwise I fear that we're going to get this wrong. Jim, what do you make of what we're seeing in terms of the energy complex and the rising prices and the and the implications for your business? Because I go back to the point that I made before. like, If we don't get the sequencing right on this, we're introducing policies to push people to more renewables. We're going to create perhaps a crisis for business, for consumers as well, of, of rising prices. I'm just not sure we're, we're sort of reflecting the economic realities with, with public policy today. How, how do you view it?
4: When we talk about uh, policy in the United States, we always advocate for an all of the above energy policy. Right. And that is because solar and wind are important. And I don't want to knock that at all. We sell a lot of material into solar and wind, and we buy a lot of solar and wind power. Uh, We just announced today three new partnerships will be over 850 megawatts of solar and wind, so it's a considerable contribution to our own CO2 reductions. However, it doesn't have the scale to be able to replace natural gas, and natural gas is needed to replace coal if we want to move down in CO2 emissions. If we want to move to a hydrogen economy, the most affordable way to do it is through natural gas. Green hydrogen is a long way away. And by the way, it is 20 times the cost of natural gas. So we, we need to be well planned and well thought out about this transition, and it will be a transition. But because we use natural gas does not mean we can't be low carbon. The United States halved its CO2 emissions by moving from coal to natural gas we can do it again, and other countries can do it as well, and they will all need access to clean and abundant natural gas like we have here. And what you're seeing right now is countries that don't have other alternatives pulling hard on coal and on natural gas because it's winter time. there are not enough inventories, and they're making a big pull to try to keep their people warm during the winter. That's what's happening. now. We're well positioned to be able to navigate through that. We've got our footprint in the Americas, uh, North and and South America, as well as in the Middle East, and those will be advantaged through this, and we'll get through this. But not unlike other supply chains, energy demand is ahead of energy supply right now. Supply will catch up. Uh, We won't be in this state forever. And I think we just have to make sure that we don't put policies in the way that make the problem even worse.
0: Yes. A warning perhaps about the future if we get it wrong. Jim, great to chat to you. Um, have a good day today. And we get the message 2050's the date, if not before, I'm sure, with the, your plans. Jim Fittling, the CEO of Dow, thank you for joining us, sir.
4: Great to see you.
0: Good to see you too. All right, still ahead. In the middle of a chain reaction, we look at how global supply issues are affecting the world economy, as we were just discussing. Welcome back to First Move. There are growing fears about the impact of the supply chain crisis and the impact it could have on the global economy. Demand for products and resources is surging after COVID-19. And that's leading to a crunch everywhere from Beijing to Berlin. Kang La has more on the perspective from here in the United States.
2: Okay, so
6: we got a second. Crew to understand the problem on the ground, you first need to see it from the air.
4: We're flying right over the anchorages just south of the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach.
6: This is where the global supply chain meets the U.S. economy, says Coast Guard Commander Stephen Bohr.
4: It's record breaking, it's unprecedented. There are more ships than there are parking spots. We are effectively operating. A cell phone waiting lot in the Pacific Ocean.
6: This bottleneck of container ships, as far as the eye can see, carries more than half the made in Asia items purchased by the American consumer.
4: You're looking at all of the electronics, you're looking at all of the home goods, you're looking at all of the things that people are looking forward to buy this coming holiday
1: season.
6: Zero ships usually stay parked here. But on this day, Commander Bohr counts 55 in the ports and more drifting further out in the Pacific. While worst here, the backup is at all West Coast U.S. ports. What does that indicate to you about what's happening in the supply chain?
4: You know, I think everybody can see that things are slowing down.
6: Slowing down and piling up at sea and at the ports of entry. This is what happens when a global economy snaps back after the COVID slump of 2020. American consumers are back buying with force, but the supply chain is struggling to catch up. We need to have an Amazon state of mind
4: in this industry. And by that, I mean, Amazon changed everything.
6: While shoppers click 24 hours a day, factories in Asia are still stopping due to COVID. Then in the U.S., national labor shortages and limited work hours. The port of Long Beach is just now experimenting with round-the-clock operations.
4: What this is is a wake-up call for all of us in this industry to realize you can't operate with the model of yesterday.
6: The goal, cut the wait time for truck drivers, the next link of the supply chain, moving containers out of the port. Every day, they'll fly six hours in the harbor. You have to wait like six hours. Six hours? Six or eight. I was in there for nine hours. Nine hours Ruben Ponce lost that he could have been moving merchandise.
3: It means I'm making less money, yeah, because I can't do as many rounds.
6: National data shows there is a truck driver shortage, but Ponce says the problem is even more basic than that.
4: So now the port is backed up, us, we're backed up, the truckers, we're backed up, everyone's backed up. And it's just a big problem.
6: So it's like a chain reaction. It's a, exactly, exactly. Delayed trucks means delays at warehouses like Canton Food Company in Los Angeles. I have about eight containers out in the harbor somewhere uh, are from China and Vietnam. Filled with food, still just waiting. That means for this warehouse, empty shelves with no date to fill them. Basic economics are at play. Scarcity drives up prices. So it's almost doubled in price? Uh, I would say maybe at least 70%. Once the
2: cheese is ready, prices for
6: ingredients restaurant owner Ricardo Mosqueda has
2: to pay. All those different products that you had to substitute, you had to change, now 30% more. You know, 50% more, 100% more.
6: This La Tacaria brand location operates in a renovated shipping container. Por favor. The supplies Mosquito needs sit out at sea in the same metal bins. A cruel irony after barely keeping his restaurant open through the pandemic.
2: We, we worry as far as, because you don't know what's going to happen, right? You don't know what's next.
6: How long are these ships going to
4: be floating out here? I really can't say how long they're going to be like this. I think uh, we're all going to wait and see how long this shakes out.
2: Hmm.
0: More First Move after the break. Welcome back to First Move. Expo 2020 in Dubai is offering more than just the next big thing. It's also potentially a way to shape the mindset of its millions of visitors. CNN's Lenny Jokos explains.
2: The 1933 Chicago Fair lived up to its billing as a century of progress.
7: Expos, or world fairs, have helped revolutionize everything from transport to commerce. They have led to lasting inventions, from the mobile phone to live TV and even ketchup.
4: Other innovations range from uh, pick your favourite car, your automotive technologies, x-ray machines, Campbell's tomato soup. These are all um, innovations that debuted at World's Fairs.
7: Today, they are no longer just about revealing the next best thing. They are also being used to drive critical change in the mindsets of its millions of visitors. And it's in the Opportunity Pavilion, where changing attitudes are set to be explored. Expo is my happy place. I cannot wait for our visitors to come and experience that. As director of the Opportunity Pavilion, Anusha has a clear mission, showing the potential of individuals and communities to shape the future when it comes to things like water, food and energy.
0: These are the basic needs of human beings. To be able to make it more available uh, to
7: people, we found three people in their communities who have made the change. Several miles away on the outskirts of Dubai, one of those people, Mariam Al-Junebi, a farmer turned community activist, is busy changing the mindset of her fellow growers.
1: We grow citrus, we grow figs, all kinds of vegetables
7: we can grow here. Mariam says her mission is to get her fellow farmers to embrace organic and sustainable practices.
1: Welcome, Ahmed. I will show you now the sample of hydroponic system. She says
7: she's trained hundreds of farmers and educated school children throughout the United Arab Emirates. Now... Her story is among several being highlighted at the Opportunity Pavilion at Expo 2020.
6: These stories are important because it shows us that there are people out there who are making a change.
7: And this change has a huge impact on the community. Water, water, water. (laughs) It's one of those key goals of Expo 2020, trying to get its millions of visitors to become agents of change in their local communities. Eleni Jaka, CNN. Expo 2020,
0: Dubai. And that's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. Stay safe and I'll see you tomorrow.
3: Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep
4: Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN Flashdoc about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country: Beyoncé and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at maxcom Country.